Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, this is the fourth week of our sermon series, Easter Encounters, a sermon series for Eastertide. If you're just joining us, we've been looking at some of the experiences that the first disciples had with the risen Jesus. And if you miss any of the previous messages, you can always find those at our website or listen on the go through our uh, podcast, wherever you get your podcast. As many of you know, we began with Mary Magdalene's Easter encounter at the empty tomb. And two weeks ago, we saw where Jesus catches up with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then last Sunday, we looked at Thomas's Easter encounter with the risen Jesus as the Lord accommodated his doubt, and then how Thomas is the first to confess that Jesus is God. Which brings us to the very next episode in John's Gospel, where Jesus has breakfast with his disciples and restores Peter. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 21. You can read along with me there or just follow along on the screen. And please stand as we read the inspired scriptures together. John chapter 21, begin with verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. 
None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Cancel culture. Maybe you've heard of it. If you look it up on Wikipedia, it says this. Cancel culture is a modern form of ostracism in which someone is thrust out of social or professional circles, whether it be online, on social media, or in person. Those who are subject to this ostracism are said to have been canceled. This expression, canceled culture, has mostly negative connotations and is commonly used in debates on free speech and censorship. Wikipedia says, the notion of cancel culture is a variant on the term call-out culture and constitutes a form of boycotting or shunning involving an individual who is deemed to have acted or spoken in a questionable or controversial manner. You know, when we've seen this sort of thing, we've seen it both on the political right and the left, haven't we? We've seen it aimed at celebrities as well as those who are unknown but said the wrong thing, used the wrong word, or made a really dumb mistake when they were being watched by a culture that gets whipped into a self-righteous frenzy and is ready to pounce with merciless judgment. I could give several examples of this, but... Honestly, I worry that by doing so, someone listening, depending on your political affiliation, might prove my point and shut me out this morning. Or worse yet, cancel me. Because this is where we're at today, isn't it? So I'll just trust that you know what I'm talking about and that you can imagine what it's like, imagine what it's like to be on the receiving end of the cancel culture mob. I think it's accurate to describe it that way. It's as Rowan Atkinson, the British comedian known for playing Mr. Bean, recently said this. He said, what we have now is the digital equivalent of the medieval mob roaming the streets looking for someone to burn. 
Okay, I'll use one political reference. Back in October 2019, former President Barack Obama challenged call-out and canceled culture in a speech he gave at the Obama Foundation Summit. He said this, quote, I do get a sense now among certain young people, and this is accelerated by social media, that the way of me making change is to be as judgmental as possible about other people, and that's enough. Like if I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or use the wrong verb, then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself because, man, you see how woke I was. I called you out. Obama said, this is not activism, and this is not bringing about change. He said, quote, this idea of purity and that you're never compromised, that you're always politically woke and stuff like that, you should get over that quickly. The world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. And if all you're doing is casting stones, you're probably not going to get very far. That's easy to do. Now, whatever you think about Obama and his presidency, uh, we all see that he's on to something with his comments about how we tend to pounce on people in the wrong and think that we've made the world a better place. It's easy to do, and we feel good about ourselves when we do it. Now, but don't misunderstand me. I think we should be discerning about what is right and wrong. We should speak truth to power when it's relevant and even refuse to support those who continue to commit crimes, who perpetuate hate and sexism and racism and violence and exploit the weak and the vulnerable. That's not what I'm talking about and that's not what Obama was talking about either. But I mention this because many folks, even in the church, and maybe I should say especially in the church, don't recognize that we're being drawn into these toxic extremes, which often looks more like the work of Satan, the accuser, than that of Jesus, the healer, the redeemer, and the one who reconciles and restores us to God and to human community. I think this is quite prophetic today in the culture we live in. It goes against the grain. It is counterculture, countercultural to do what I'm proposing here and what I think Jesus calls us to. Furthermore, you may have noticed that we are increasingly becoming a society deprived of mercy and forgiveness, and one that is incapable of offering confessing, repentant sinners any grace or means of reconciliation and restoration. And as a pastor and teacher and believer in the good news of Jesus Christ, I say to us this morning that this is simply not going to do for disciples of Jesus. I submit to you that we should have nothing to do with this sort of satanic behavior as we remember who we are and who we would be without Christ. But by the grace of God that through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we have been made new. We have been given a second chance. Amen? We are called to believe in God's reconciling love, His restorative power, and His merciful call on all of our lives. That's what I want us to see this morning in this message. As Jesus reinstates Peter.
after his failure. That is what we see today in the Scripture. Jesus is going to forgive. He's going to reinstate Peter after his blunder as the leader and the spokesperson for these 12 disciples. So now let's, let's move on verse by verse. I think I've got your attention now. Let's go back to John chapter 21, beginning with verse 1, and let's walk through that together and see what the Lord will say to us. Chapter 21, verse 1, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Now, John says afterward. Why? You'll notice that this follows Thomas's Easter encounter in the previous episode. And this time, his disciples have traveled northward into Galilee. You'll recall much of Jesus' ministry took place around the Sea of Galilee. And you'll find in the Gospels, it's also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, and several of the disciples are fishermen. You'll look in this list. So they are waiting there for the next appearing of Jesus. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin, as we saw last week, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, they were fishermen, and two other disciples were there together. Seven disciples in all, so they're not all there, and at least three of them were fishermen by trade. Verse 3, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. A couple things to note. Why does Peter go fishing? Now, I've heard sermons, you've probably heard sermons where this is like Peter has given up on his call uh, to be a, an apostle, that Peter has just gone back to fishing and he shouldn't have done that. But that's not really what the text says. Uh, it's okay that Peter is going fishing. They need to eat. They need to make money. Right? Even ministers of the gospel do this, and especially those who are not full-time vocational ministers. And so here is Peter going fishing, the, other, the others go. Something else you to, to notice here, Peter still has disciples taking his lead. Let's go fishing. They say, that sounds good. Let's go fishing. Verse 3, we read that, did we? So they, caught, they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Notice they're fishing at night. Night fishing is said to be very good on the Sea of Galilee. Also, some folks fished at night so they could take their fresh catch to market first thing in the morning. But unfortunately, the fish aren't biting this evening. Look at verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Now, why didn't they know that it was Jesus? Well, we're not sure. But possibly for a few reasons. One, it was still dark. It was at daybreak. Two, it was too far. Verse 8 says that they were a hundred yards from shore. Maybe too far away to, to really identify who this is. Three, they were tired. They've been fishing all night. They were up all day the, the day before. They're up all night. And four, Jesus looked different in his resurrected state. We've already seen this in other Eastern encounters where people didn't recognize Jesus right away. As we saw with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, God seems to be keeping certain people from recognizing that this is Jesus. And it could have been some of those. It could have been all of those. We don't know, but they don't recognize Jesus at first. Look at verse 5. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Now, depending on what translation you're looking at, the, the Greek word there, uh, friends, it says in the NIV, the Greek word is paideia, which can be translated as children or little ones. And Jesus, you see, addresses them as he had many times before, 
This isn't an insult. Yeah, in our culture, some of these things just don't translate well. It's like when Jesus says to someone, woman or women, you know, that, that sounds awful today, but uh, that was customary in that time, just as it was for Jesus, the master, the Lord, the rabbi, to call his disciples children. This is not an insult, but is rather an affectionate way of relating to them. And in this case, Jesus uses a standard Greek idiom for anyone inquiring as to whether the fishermen or the hunters had experienced success while anticipating a negative response. No, they said, we did not catch anything. Verse 6, he said, throw your net then on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now think about this. We know, because we actually have discovered some through archaeology, that Galilean boats were about 27 feet long and seven and a half feet wide. And we also know that fishermen would use the left side of the boat for casting their nets because the right side held the oars. Therefore, Jesus' command which is what it was. This is in the Greek an imperative. He's telling them to do something, not a suggestion, a command. Would have seemed unusual and downright ridiculous, right? Cast the net seven and a half feet the other direction. So get that picture. He tells them to do this. And at this point, the disciples must have thought that this stranger on the shore could see something that they couldn't or that as crazy as it sounded, this guy sure sounded like he knew what he was talking about. Maybe they were just curious enough to do it. Whatever it was that compelled these exhausted fishermen to do as they were told, they did cast their net and the catch was so large that they couldn't get it in the boat. Where have we seen that before? Right? If you're these disciples and this happens, this ought to click. And immediately it did click for one of the disciples. It was like deja vu for him. This had happened before. Jesus had given them a, a miraculous catch when he first called them to be his disciples. Verse 7. Look what happens. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now many scholars believe, and I think I've said this earlier in the series, the disciple whom Jesus loved is the author John. Uh, I've said this, that the way John expressed his own experience of Christ's deep love is to say, describe himself this way, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He, he wants us to know he understands something about the Lord that the others don't quite get or didn't certainly get at first. He understood before all the others. It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard this, he wrapped his outer garment around him. He had taken it off, and then he jumped in the water. You see, Peter had been working in his loincloth, right, down to his skivvies, right? And now he, he puts his clothes back on, so at least he's presentable once he reaches the shore, and then he dives in and swims 100 yards toward Jesus. You getting this picture? Peter figures that he can get there quicker by swimming than by rowing, even in wet clothes. 
plus the other disciples, they still have to deal with the fish. Notice how we can see Peter's love and devotion to Jesus. Now, you remember when John tells us about the empty, empty tomb scene, it says the other disciple outran Peter. Not this time. John may have beat Peter to the empty tomb, but he wasn't going to beat Peter to the seashore. Something has happened with Peter. Something's different. Verse 8, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. We should, like uh, other fish stories in the Gospels, begin to see that this scene is a metaphor a metaphor. There's spiritual meaning here. There's a deeper meaning than just, oh good, they get to make some money at the market. They get to eat and have breakfast now. I mean, that is good. It is nice, but there's something more going on. John wants us to see the spiritual meaning. Verse 9 says, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Burning coals. The New Revised Standard Version says, a charcoal fire. Don't miss this church. John seems to be resetting the scene because something else happened around a fire. Do you remember this? Peter denied Jesus three times while warming himself by a fire in John 18, 18. So if you've been paying attention, you've been reading the gospel, and you see this scene, you're like, oh, oh, look what's about to happen. Once again, Jesus continues to play the host, just as he did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's his fire. It's his table. He provides for his disciples. He feeds his sheep. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat. This guy's kind of excited. Look what he does. And drags the whole net ashore. It was full of large fish. John wants us to know that. I mean, these are big fish. 153. I wouldn't try to read too much into that. A lot of people do. The point is, this is a lot of fish. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Folks, I think Peter is excited as a child on Christmas morning. (laughs) Do you see that excitement? But make no mistake, while he may be a child of the king, he has the strength of a man. In his enthusiasm and in his determination to sit with the the risen Jesus here, Peter lugs all the fish closer to where they were sitting just as Jesus had asked. Of course, Jesus said, bring some. And Peter brings them all. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Now, why is this significant? Just a brief word here. As radically different as the resurrected body of Jesus is, Jesus appears and disappears. He walks through walls, seemingly. There's something different about this body of Jesus. The risen body of Jesus 
uh, can be touched, but yet it appears and disappears. The risen body of Jesus doesn't quite look the same, but the risen body of Jesus eats. What does this say about our future resurrected state? It's fascinating to think about it. Verse 13 and 14, Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. John means that this is the third post-resurrection story that he includes in his gospel because we know that Jesus made 10 appearances in all of the gospels combined. Think about all of the appearances that we see. He appears to Mary Magdalene. He appears to the other women at the tomb. He appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appears to Peter, to the disciples in the locked room, and then again with Thomas present, and now here with seven disciples, but also on a mountain in Galilee, which we'll see next week, and then at the ascension. Of course, the apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus also appeared to over 500 disciples at once. And so much for a group hallucination. <laughs> and you remember, uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if you don't believe me, you can go look these people up. They're still alive. I can give you their names. We also know, Paul tells us, that Jesus appeared to James, the half-brother of Jesus, and to himself on the road to Damascus, a total of 12 appearances. And according to Acts 1-3, all these things happened over a period of 40 days, which is why we celebrate Eastertide from Easter Sunday to Pentecost Sunday. It's no wonder that the Jesus movement was unstoppable. When you think about all of these resurrection appearances and all of these Eastern encounters, in the face of opposition and eventually persecution, the church is born. These Easter encounters fueled the birth of the church. And we can see that, the beginnings of that here. And then the story turns back to Peter in verse 15. Now before we read those, these following verses, there's something we should note as the story turns back to Peter, because I think it's often overlooked. We need to remember that this is not Peter's first Easter encounter with the risen Jesus. We, we I think, missed this. At least for a long time, I missed this. This is not Jesus' first encounter with Peter. You'll recall that when the two disciples from Emmaus arrived back in Jerusalem, you remember that a couple weeks ago? When they trekked back through the night to Jerusalem, after they had an experience with the risen Jesus, the disciples tell them that they know that Jesus had been raised from the dead because they say in Luke 24, verse 34, that the Lord had appeared to Simon Peter. Interesting. Now, what do you think that first conversation with Jesus and Peter was like? Right? Peter had denied Jesus three times. He had, he had run and hid. After, even after he said, I would die with you, all may turn away. Remember at the table, all may turn away and leave you, but I won't leave you, Lord, but yet Peter does. So what do you think that first conversation was like? It's important to remember that because what we're about to see has a, has a different understanding than maybe what we would first give to it if we think this is the first encounter. Jesus is doing this publicly with the other disciples 
to hear. Keep that in mind. We need to recognize that what is happening is a public conversation. All of the disciples are listening, and Jesus is saying these words to Peter. And it isn't just for Peter's sake. It's also for those who are listening to this conversation. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Notice what Jesus is going to do here. He's going to ask Peter three times if he loves him. Why three? Because Peter denied him three times. So he asks him three times, do you love me? Also notice Jesus addresses him as Simon and not Peter. Peter doesn't feel like Peter. What does Peter mean? Remember Jesus earlier said, your name will be Peter because upon this rock I will build my church. Peter's not feeling like a rock. (laughs) He's not been acting like the rock. In the Greek, there's a variety in the words that Jesus and Peter uses here, and I'm going to point those out to us so that we can understand what's really happening in this passage. So he asked him that first time, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Now, what are the these? We're not entirely sure. There's a few options here. Um, it could be the fish. It, it could be, do you love me more than the other disciples? But it's probably the fish. It's probably the occupation. It could also be just this comparison between the others, but we're not sure. Do you love me more than these? Love, the word uh, Jesus uses there is agape. Do you love me unconditionally? And Peter's response is very telling because Jesus said, or Peter says to Jesus, you know that I love you, you know that I phileo you, another word for love, but this is a brotherly admiration kind of love. You see that? Jesus is saying, do you love me agape? Do you, do you love me unconditionally? Peter says, you know I love you. You know I phileo you. You know I admire you. Jesus then commissions Peter in verse 16. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. This is what it says in Greek. Do you love me unconditionally? Peter says, you know I love you like a brother. You know I admire you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Once again, Jesus uses the word agape, and Peter uses phileo. And in a second time, Jesus commissions him in front of the other disciples to lead and shepherd the church. Verse 17, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Jesus changes the word. Peter was hurt. This is why he was hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you phileo me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Why is Peter hurt? I think it's because, number one, Jesus used phileo, and two, Peter understands what Jesus is doing this third time. It brings it all back for Peter. Three times Peter denied him. Three times Jesus questions him. Can you see what's happening here, church? 
Look at how recent events have changed Peter. He's not so confident anymore. You know, I said I agaped you before. I'm just not there, Jesus. We can't help but notice Peter's response has revealed that he's been humbled by all that has happened, that he has lost his confidence. And so Jesus wants to restore him in front of the others, to restore him in front of the rest of the disciples, and to give him back that confidence that Peter is a pastoral leader and will be a leader of the church. Peter says, look at the end of verse 17, I don't know what to say. I, I don't know what to say, Lord. You know everything, and despite my failure, you know that I truly love you. And then for the third and final time, Jesus completes his reinstatement of Peter and commissions him to lead and feed the church. And then Jesus goes on to verse 18, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Stretch out your hands is a, a clear allusion to crucifixion. Jesus is telling Peter how he is going to die. Now, why would he do this? This doesn't seem very uplifting. <laughs> Maybe not to us. Like, how is this supposed to encourage Peter and rebuild his confidence and restore him publicly? Well, try to put yourself in Peter's shoes. Remember that Peter had failed before. He swore that he would die with Jesus, but he denied him instead. Nevertheless, Jesus is reassuring Peter that he has what it takes. In fact, he says that Peter will ultimately die for him. That's what Peter wanted to have that kind of faith. Secondly, Jesus tells Peter that he has a vocation to lead and feed the church. So in the eyes of Jesus, Peter is the rock after all. Yes, Peter failed, but his failure has humbled him and positioned him for greater use in the kingdom. Therefore, Peter can live knowing he has a long ministry ahead of him. Yes, he'll die a martyr, but he'll be a pillar of the early church first. And look, with the very words that Jesus first used as an invitation to discipleship, the Lord says once again to Peter, those first words that he extended to Peter when he first met him, follow me. Let's begin again. Literally, Jesus says, keep following me, Peter. Keep following me and you will live into all that I've called you to be. And you'll be able to prove your love and your devotion as you vowed to do in the beginning. Keep following me and you'll receive your heart's desire to be a bold but humble leader. To be the one that shows others the faith it takes to walk on the water. To be the example of what it looks like when someone has made Christ central and supreme, forsaking all other loves. And brothers and sisters, Peter is able to become everything we read about him in the book of Acts because Jesus forgave him and restored him. Days before the Spirit comes at Pentecost, Jesus saw in Peter what he couldn't see in himself, and he called it out. And he does the same for us. All of that same grace is available to us today. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, 
Even if you've denied the Son of God, Jesus can receive you back and help you begin again. Jesus can restore you and give you a purpose in the kingdom of God. And I pray that our ears would be open to hear his voice and our hearts open to receive it this morning. And finally, let's ref reflect briefly on a few takeaways. If you're taking notes, you might jot these down. Beyond some of the other things I've already shared, we might sum up the message this way, some takeaways. Number one, Jesus wants us to see our need and be willing to obey so that we might know his power. Remember Jesus walking along the shore, have you caught any fish? <laughs> all that work, all that toil, all that stuff you're doing, what has it amounted to? <laughs> what have you gained when you've done those things on your own? Jesus wants us to see our need. And when he commissions us and tells us to do something as silly or as foolish as it may sound, we need to do it so we might know his power. Even if it means casting your net seven and a half feet on the other side of the boat. What is the Lord speaking to you about this morning? What, is, what does this look like in your life? What is the Spirit saying to you? Number two, another takeaway. Jesus wants us to practice forgiveness and believe in his ability to redeem and restore. Peter denied Jesus, left Jesus to die alone. Let me just think about how awful crucifixion is. And imagine going through that and looking up and all of your close friends are gone. But Jesus forgives that. His kindness changes everything. And it's what Paul had said, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Not canceling, calling, and shaming, and guilting, and judging people, but showing kindness, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Folks, if we were really serious about change in our own lives, in our church, in our churches, in the culture, we would stop doing that other stuff. But I have a sneaky suspicion that it's not really about that when it gets down to the root of it. But for followers of Jesus, we must be about doing these things. Amen? Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't cancel you? Hallelujah. <laughs> How do you need to believe in this for yourself? Do, do you need an encounter with the Lord's forgiveness this morning? And what about others? How do you need to extend mercy and grace so that others can change? Believe in the power of mercy, grace, and forgiveness so that others can change. And then lastly, number three, this one's for us all. Jesus commissions every one of us. How are you serving Christ where you are? Yeah, maybe you fish. But maybe God is also calling you to do something else as well. If Jesus said to you this morning, right, think about whatever it is that you do, whatever, what all the things are in your life that you find important, and Jesus says, do you love me more than these? What would you say? Could you say yes? 
what would these be? Maybe God's calling you into vocational ministry. We don't talk about that a whole lot, but maybe God's doing that. Or maybe to some other ministry in the church. How is Christ commissioning you? It's my prayer that we would reflect and consider all of these things this morning in this straightforward, simple message about the Lord's forgiveness and grace and what God can do if we'll believe in that for ourselves and believe in it for others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. Jesus, we thank you for how you met Peter. Yeah, you had that private conversation, but you were also concerned about what others thought about him. And so you had this one publicly. You forgave him, you reinstated him, and God, you used him mightily. Lord, we believe that John tells us this story because he wants us to experience that as well and to extend that to others as well. Help us to do that. Father, our hearts and our minds are open to you. Would you speak to us? Would you empower us? Would you convict us? Would you challenge us and would you equip us so that we might be obedient to your command? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.